Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. Well, it's a cool and overcast Sunday morning in Los Angeles. Yesterday we even had some rain. I guess you could say Los Angeles has weather too, occasionally. What you're about to hear is a presentation I gave this past Wednesday at Chadwick School in Palos Verdes, California. Miss Timms, an 8th grade teacher, asked if I'd come and speak to the 8th grade students on basic Buddhism. They had been studying that in their history class and had some questions they'd like to ask. So what you're about to hear is that presentation to 8th graders at Chadwick School on basic Buddhism. Okay, I'm going to record my talk today because I have podcasts, and um, 45 of them so far. If you go to dharmatalks.info, you can find all the podcasts I've done, interviews I've done. If you play guitar, go to zenguitar.info. You can pick up some information on that. If you want to know about Buddhism, urbandharma.org. If you want to know more about me, kusala.info. And I'm Reverend Kusala. So let me tell you just a little bit about what I do and why I do it. And then uh, if you have questions, uh, let's get into some of those, because that's the most fun for me. Um, I was born a Lutheran a long time ago. And when I was in high school, uh, about your age, I became an agnostic, because it was the 60s and it was important to question all authority and not trust anyone over 30. And so that's what I did. And, and then I turned 30. And realized I'd be dead soon because people over 30 die quickly. And so I wanted to get a religion so I could die well. And I bought a book called World Religions by Houston Smith. And in that book, there was a chapter on like all the major religions. And I read the chapter on Buddhism twice. It made the most sense to me. It sounded like a cool religion. It sounded like something I could do. And then I got a, a phone book and found a meditation center and started to practice meditation. Well, not only did Buddhism tell me how to die, but Buddhism told me how to live as well. So that was back in around 1979, 1980. And around 1994, I became ordained as a novice monk. And in 1996, I became ordained as a, uh, a fully ordained Buddhist monk in the Zen tradition of Vietnam. Now, the question is, what does an American Buddhist monk do with his time? And what I ended up doing was being a volunteer in community. So for a year, I was a volunteer at L.A. County State Prison for Men, and I taught the prisoners how to meditate, and I taught them about Buddhism. For five years, I was a volunteer in Juvenile Hall in downtown Los Angeles, East Lake, where they have 600 young people about your age behind bars any one day. I taught uh, meditation. I found other volunteers to help me. And we had a yoga program, an Akita program, a Tai Chi program. And uh, then I became a police chaplain in Garden Grove, California, which is in Orange County. And I've been doing that since the year 2000. So I have a bulletproof vest that I wear. And I go on ride-alongs with the police officers. And I'm there to sort of help 
uh, make sense and give meaning to how difficult it is to be a human being. I'm also at UCLA, and I'm the Buddhist chaplain on campus, and we have a Buddhist club that meets every Tuesday in the Catholic Center, and I'm on the spiritual care committee at the UCLA Medical Center, and I speak to chaplains on Buddhist patient care and end-of-life issues. How do Buddhists need to be treated differently if they get sick or if they're going to die? So, not knowing what I was going to do when I became ordained, I found myself having so much to do. I'm always busy every day. Tomorrow, I'll be teaching an extension class at Loyola Marymount University on the Eightfold Path. They invited me to teach a class, so now I consider myself to be like a professor, too. Isn't that cool? So, what have I discovered about Buddhism after being ordained? and doing all that volunteer work, I have discovered that life is really difficult for human beings because human beings suffer a lot. I also discovered that the Buddha believed in God. But the one thing that God couldn't do, the one thing that God wouldn't do, was end human suffering. So he decided to figure out how to end it himself. So you might think that all Buddhists are atheists, but we're not. A lot of Buddhists believe in God, but those Buddhists realize that God can end human suffering. So we have to do that ourselves. A lot of Buddhists think that God created the world. A lot of Buddhists uh, don't care who created the world. And some Buddhists think the flying spaghetti monster created the world. So if you're a Buddhist, you get to believe any way you want to about how it all started and how it's going to end. What Buddhism tells us is what to do now, what to do today. Not what happened and why we're here or how we're going to end. But what are we supposed to do now? So in the first talk the Buddha gave, he said, I have discovered four things. He said, I have discovered that life is really difficult. And the reason life is so difficult for humans is because we're born. Now, isn't that sort of a weird thing to say? Because we're born, that's why we have all these problems. But if we weren't born, would you get sick? If you weren't born, would you get old? If you weren't born, would you, would you die? No. So it starts right from birth. We're here, and now we all have to get sick. And now we all have to get old, and now we all have to die. And nobody figured out how to get past that. Not only that, the Buddha went on to say that sometimes there are people in our life that we don't like, and sometimes there are places that we don't want to be in, and we're around those people and in those places and can't do anything about it. The Buddha also said that everything we really like and want to hold on to, like that new video iPod that you got for Christmas, it's going to be taken away from you one day. You'll either lose it, it'll get stolen, or it just won't work anymore. So everything that we really like in this life of ours will be taken away. And the culprit is impermanence and change. So when the Buddha looked at life, I think he had a realistic way of looking at it. He said, ultimately, but not all the time, he said, ultimately, it's going to be real difficult to be a human being. And the major reason it's so difficult is because we're all selfish. All we think about is ourself. 
We want to have a good hair day. We want to have cool shoes. You know, and sometimes, no matter how hard you try to have a good hair day, it just doesn't work. So, ex well, except for me, maybe. <laughs> so, so here we are, being selfish, trying to hold on to all the good stuff, trying to push away all the bad stuff. We're clinging and pushing. And our problem is we are born with original ignorance, according to Buddhism, not original sin. So we can't see the world clearly. We don't know how to do it. So the reason we suffer so much is because we're selfish. But the Buddha kept talking, and he said, we can end the suffering, we can end our selfishness by achieving nirvana. Nirvana is the end of suffering. Suffering. Nirvana is the end of all future rebirths. Nirvana is the end of karma. Karma plays a very important role in Buddhism. Has anybody seen the TV show, My Name is Earl? Yes. Okay, well, it's, it's all about karma, isn't it? He was watching Carson Daly one night and realized Carson Daly had a great life and he didn't. And he tried to figure out what the difference was. And he figured out that Carson Daly had good karma. And he didn't. So now in every episode, he goes and tries to right the wrongs of his unskillful karma that he produced. It's a very interesting show, I think. So as a Buddhist, what we're trying to do is change our karma. We're trying to change what we say and what we do, and we're trying to change what we think. How do we change what we say and what we do? As a Buddhist, we accept five training precepts. That's part of becoming a Buddhist. The five training precepts are, I will train myself not to take life. I will train myself not to take what is not given, not to steal. I will train myself not to indulge in sexual misconduct. I will train myself not to lie. I will train myself not to consume intoxicants. Okay? So here we are as a Buddhist, and we're taking these five precepts, and those five precepts have something to do with what we say and what we do. Once we start to get that under control a little bit, then we start to meditate. And meditation changes how we think. Karma is everything we think, everything we say, and everything we do. That's karma. The consequences of thinking, saying, and doing in early Buddhism, the Theravada tradition, that's called vipaka. Karma, vipaka, cause and consequence. So as a Buddhist, we start really simple. We take the five precepts and we start to have a meditation practice. And eventually that transforms us into a new person, maybe less selfish and more selfless. We are trying to acquire wisdom and compassion. We want to be of service to those who are suffering. People sometimes ask me why I volunteer so much. Do I want to change the world? Do I want to make the world a better place? I say, absolutely not. I volunteer because people are suffering not because I want to save the world. The Buddha said we can't save the world, that this world was born. And what happens when something's born? It has to die. So one day, the sun will just pop out. 
we'll have uh, ice and snow everywhere, and we won't have any place to live anymore. But the Buddha said everything that's born will exist for a while, and then we'll die. Can we make the world a better place? Yes. Drive a small car. Save gas. Pick up the trash. We can make it better, but we can't make this world perfect, according to Buddhism, because this world is flawed. This is samsara, the Buddha said. This is where everything that's born has to die. This world is filled with birth and death all the time. Okay, I'm going to stop there because I'm looking forward to hearing some of your questions. Now, I guess you wrote a paragraph about Buddhism, and you've been studying Buddhism, and does it make perfect sense to everybody? And if it doesn't make perfect sense to you, what's your sticking point? Where do you get confused? So, yes, yes, sir. It's just going to end? What's that? Yes. What's the point in doing anything? Yeah. What's the point in going to school? Yeah. So I think the point is we all need something to do until it's our turn to die. What are we going to do? Just yeah. So our culture, your family has decided you need some stuff to do. So you're in school. It is being attached to things, exactly. And it's not about not doing anything. It's about not owning the stuff. Can you have a car and not own it? Can you just use the car and not own it? And if you can do that, then if something happens to your car, you're going to suffer less. Because it's not your car, you're just using it. Next person. Okay, good question. Do I believe that homeless people and people get sick, do I believe it's that way because they're selfish, because maybe they have bad karma, and that's why they're out in the street? Would that be yeah, fair? Or like, if somebody gets really badly sick and, like, they're going to die because yeah. they're selfish? Okay, great, great question. No, absolutely not. The Buddha said it takes five things to make stuff happen. Nothing in Buddhism ever happens because of one thing. Buddhism, Buddhism is not monotheistic. A lot of people think one is the best number. One nation under God. Isn't one cool? Can't we all be one? Are we all going to the same place? Isn't one wonderful? And when I was in school, we had a song that said, One is the loneliest number. So one may not be the best number. So what five things determine what happens to you? The first thing that determines what happens to you, or a homeless person, or a sick person, are the natural laws of cause and effect. For instance, gravity has a lot to do with you falling down. So we have these natural laws that have something to do with everything that happens to us. The second reason why stuff happens to us is because of genes and chromosomes, biology, that has a lot to do with what happens to us. The third thing that causes stuff to happen is karma. That's sort of the ethical or moral aspect of this. Am I skillful or unskillful? Am I good or bad? That has a lot to do with what happens to us. The fourth reason why stuff happens to us, according to Buddhism, is our religious practice. 
you're a Christian, Jew, Muslim, Hindu, whatever you are, the religion you practice and have faith in affects the way you live in your life. That has something to do with you. And finally, the last reason, according to Buddhism, why stuff happens to us is our mind. Our mind creates a lot of our reality. In fact, I would go so far as to say our mind creates all our reality. And if that's the case, our mind has a lot to do with how we interact with the world around us. So those five things come together in a combination, and we'd look at a homeless person and say, yeah, those five things have allowed that homeless person to be homeless and have no place to live. Is he stuck? Does he have to be homeless the whole time? The Buddha said, absolutely not. What we do right now determines what happens next. So each and every one of us, if we want to be proactive and take responsibility for our life, according to Buddhism, can change our life any time we want to. But we have to do it. Okay, well, that, that, that's good. Let's, let's clarify this. Uh, people suffer because they're selfish, because they have a craving and a desire to hold on to things and not let them go, or to push stuff away. So I think the most important thing right now is we need to define suffering. What is suffering? Can you give me a definition of suffering? Okay, now, is there a difference between pain and suffering, do you think? Or are they both the same thing? Well, you suffer when you're in pain. Okay. And why do you suffer when you're in pain? It hurts. Okay, because it hurts? <laughs> well, yes, that's a great answer. But I'll give you an even better answer. A seventh grader in Glendale, California, I gave a talk in her class. And after I finished my talk, she raised her hand. Her name was Esmeralda. And she said, Reverend Kusla, I now understand the difference between pain and suffering. Suffering happens when you don't want to have the pain. So if you have pain and don't want it, you'll suffer. Suffering, according to Buddhism, is optional. Pain isn't. Okay, so you want me? <laughs> no. No. Can you come to a place of acceptance with pain? Can you look at it as being just the way it is and not wanting to run away from it? It's that sort of thing. Can you have a Honda even though you want a Ford? And if you can, then you won't suffer. But if you have a Honda and really want a Ford, you're going to suffer. If you wanted to be a brunette and you're not, you'd suffer. Because you say, I wish I was a brunette because they have the most fun. <laughs> so it's really about coming to a place of acceptance with the way you are. And if you're dying, you come to a place of acceptance with, I'm dying. And then you don't suffer, but you still die. Cool. Thanks for the question. Yes. Hi. Okay. Yeah. No, right there. Absolutely not. The Buddha, and I say that because 
I know, I'm not there yet. The Buddha, according to Buddhism, was reborn at least 550 times as a bodhisattva before his last lifetime as Siddhartha, where he achieved nirvana. So if we look at him as an example, we have 550 lifetimes and 35 years. That's how long it took him to achieve nirvana. So I'm not looking to achieve nirvana in this lifetime, but maybe a few lifetimes down the road. Thanks for the question. Yeah? How do you know how many lifetimes you've been through? Haven't got a clue. This seems like the first one. So I'm just going with that. Yeah? Is it possible to achieve nirvana as anything but a human? Is it possible to achieve nirvana as anything but human? As anything but human? Like a dog? Can a dog achieve nirvana? That's good. But according to early Buddhism, uh, we would say no. That the only existence that we can achieve nirvana in is the human existence. And why is that? Because we can practice compassion and we can acquire wisdom. Now, I take care of the animals at the meditation center where I live. We have a dog. We have a variety of cats. We have koi fish. And we have finches and a little group of pigeons that just wait for me to feed all the other animals. Well, the dog is really stupid. And you know why? Because I'll feed the dog. He'll get distracted, walk away. All the pigeons will come down, eat his food. He'll come back, and he won't know his food's gone. He'll just think he ate it, and yet he's hungry still. So you're never going to get enlightened with a mind state like that. Yeah. Please, yeah. Earlier, you said that... Guys, quiet down and ask some questions. Earlier, you said that the reason that you may get your arm chopped off or get sick, whatever happens to you in your life, bad or good, is because you were born? Because you were born. So, why are you being punished for being born? Well, you're not being punished. That's just the way life is. Some people say to me, well, Kusla, why were you born? And you know what my answer is? My answer is, well, my parents had sex and I had karma. And those things came together and I appeared in the world. Yes. Okay. Okay, the question was, how long do I meditate a day? Well, sometimes I'll meditate 45 minutes in the morning and 45 minutes in the evening. And then I work on my websites and I get presentations and I do all my other stuff. I actually meditated more before I became ordained. I thought I would be meditating every day, all day, but now I'm working really hard. So I meditate a little bit in the morning, a little bit in the evening. Thank you. Yes? How do you know how many lives, like you said, they thought the Buddha had yeah. like 550 That's lives right. before he was Siddhartha? How do we know? How do you know? Okay, well, we know that because there's some books in early Buddhism. It's called the Canon, the Pali Canon. Uh, the Christians have a Bible. Well, we have the Canon. It's a hundred books long. And one of those sections talks about the early lives of the Buddha. So that's how we know. Now, is it true or not? I don't know. But it's in the Pali Canon. We read it, and we just think that might be the case. But then, how do you know that that's, but those lives were the Buddha's lives? Like, yeah. Well, uh, the people that wrote the, those stories told us that that was the early lives of the Buddha. Oh, okay. So that's, it's just those people told us that, and we believe them. Yeah? Um, have you ever 
has achieved nirvana? Okay, good question. I haven't met anybody that I think achieved nirvana. But I've met some people that thought they achieved nirvana, but they didn't. <laughs> and uh, so if, if you wanted an example of some people that I think might be close to enlightenment or close to nirvana, I think Mother Teresa was close to nirvana. She was so cool, wasn't she? She helped all those people. She never took a vacation, you know. So there have been people in the world that maybe are pretty close to it. But the Buddha made a rule for all monks and nuns that even if you do achieve nirvana, you can't tell anybody. And that's because they won't believe you. So we don't. So if 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 somebody has, they're not going to tell me, and they don't look like they have. So. Okay, no, that's okay. Well, now let's talk about how you might be able how you might be able to identify someone who has achieved nirvana. And I'm going to use something called the four Brahma Viharas or the four immeasurables. They are loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. A person who has achieved nirvana would only have one intention. And that intention would be in the mind, and it would be love and kindness. They would love everybody, and because they loved everybody, they'd always be kind. That would be the intention. How did they act in the world? Their only activity was the activity of compassion. They were only there to help others. So now we have this person who has a mind state of loving kindness, the activity of compassion... So is this person ever happy? Is this person ever successful? Yes, they are. But only when other people are successful, only when other people are happy. That's how they get their happiness. That's how they get their success. That's called sympathetic joy. And finally, how does their mind look? It's perfectly balanced. They're neither Democrat nor Republican. They're independent. And they have no preferences. They have no choices. They don't think one is better than the other. They look at the world and see it in a perfectly balanced fashion. So that's how I would describe an enlightened human being. And I haven't found one yet. So they wouldn't like, think that somebody was better than somebody else. They think that they're all people and that they should be kind to like everybody. Exactly. And they probably wouldn't even have cool hair or shoes. You might not even recognize them because they wouldn't buy the best clothes. They wouldn't care. They just want to be clean and not smell to make people suffer, you know? And, and, and so they would have a much different way of looking at it. And say you dropped a pencil, they would pick up the pencil, give it to you, and you turn around to thank them, and they'd be gone already, helping somebody else. So you probably wouldn't, they wouldn't make a big deal of being enlightened. Thanks for the question. Yes. Like, what do you do while you meditate? Like, do you just, you just a lot about clearing your mind? Okay. Or are you just, like, focusing on one thing? Okay. What do I do when I meditate? In Buddhism, there are two kinds of Buddhist meditation. Samatha meditation, which is tranquility meditation. Insight meditation, which is vipassana meditation. Samatha meditation is just deep states of concentration. So what I do is I focus on my breath. I feel the sensation of breath going out and coming in, out and coming in. And when I first started to focus on my sensation of breath, I would count them. 
I'd exhale to count one. I'd exhale count two. From one to ten and ten to one. And one to ten and ten to one. And then when I got really good at that after two years of counting my breath, then I stopped counting and my mind just stayed with a sensation of breath without even counting it. So cool. And then there's the third part of this, which is called the representation of breath. And inside our consciousness, we have things that represent our breath. So I went from watching and counting to watching, and then I went inside and found my representation of breath in my consciousness. So I just sit quietly, and I am the breath. That's all I am. I have no past or future. I don't have thoughts about what I'm going to do or what I should have done. I'm just sitting there, breathing in, breathing out. And it's sort of like defragmenting your hard drive. You know, you get all these little bits and pieces of information, and they're just sort of floating around. And you meditate, and it just sort of empties the trash. And now you go outside, and things seem a little bit better. Did that answer your question? So... Well, you like, well, you think better before an exam if you like meditate. <laughs> yes. If you meditate before an exam, you will think better and you will have better concentration while you're taking the exam. If you meditate after the exam and you fail the exam, you'll have a better sense of acceptance. <laughs> so it's a win-win situation. Let me get over here. Yes. Yes. Okay. The question is, how does one become a Buddhist? Do we have to convert? Well, if you're nothing, if you've never been in any particular religion, there's nothing to convert from. So you can be a Buddhist. And what happens when you become a Buddhist? You go through a ceremony. And if you're a Christian, they have like baptism and they have confirmation and stuff like that. Jewish bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. Well, in Buddhism, what we have is a ceremony where you take the three refuges. What are they? I take refuge in the Buddha. The Buddha as a teacher, not as a god or a deity, but as a teacher. Someone who found his full perfection as a human being. I take refuge in that idea. I take refuge in his teachings, the Dharma. His teachings allowed him to become or uh, enlightened or achieve nirvana, and his teachings will allow us to reach nirvana or become enlightened. But even if the Buddha was here right now with us, he couldn't make you enlightened. He could only tell you how he became enlightened and encourage you to become enlightened as well. The third refuge is the Sangha. I take refuge in the Buddhist monks and nuns as a living example of the Dharma. And if I have questions or I'm confused, I can go to that living example and then I can ask questions and hopefully they'll be able to answer them. So we take refuge in the triple gem, that's called. Then we take the five precepts that I talked about earlier and then we get a certificate and we get a Buddhist name. And the Buddhist name I got was Kusala, right here, Kusala. My teacher gave me that name. And I said, well, what does it mean? He says, it means skillful. And I was so proud, I realized my teacher recognized in me how skillful I was. And he was honoring me with that name. And he said, oh no, Kusala, you are so unskillful. I gave you that name. So everybody, every time somebody says Kusala, you'll remember how unskillful you are and how much work you got to do. 
So sometimes when you get your Buddhist name, it becomes part of your training, too. Now, why do we get a Buddhist name? Well, having names helps us grow. And let me put it this way. Say your name is... What is your name? Marissa. Marissa? Okay. So now she's Marissa, but maybe if she gets married, she'll be Mrs. John Smith or Marissa Smith. And then when she has her first child, she gets the name Mom. And then... And, and mom has to do a lot of different stuff that Marissa never had to do before. And now, when she gets really good at being mom, she gets another name, Grandma. <laughs> and so, each time you get one of those names, it's encouraging you to be different, to be better than you were before, because now you have more responsibilities. Now you have more wisdom and compassion for the other person. And so when we get our Buddhist name, we're hoping that works for us in that way, too. Thanks for the question. Yeah. What's the difference between the meditation that you do and transcendental meditation? Well, okay, transcendental meditation is sort of a Hindu kind of meditation, and they use a mantra, and they repeat the mantra, the word or the phrase, over and over again, and it acts like a knife and cuts through your discursive thought. So you can't really have a full, complete thought because you keep repeating Coca-Cola, 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 and your thought gets cut up in a million pieces. That's one of the techniques we can use too, but it's not our only technique. We have 40, four zero different kinds of meditation techniques. To My technique is watching the breath. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Let me go back here and we'll get... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and how do we even know there was a Buddha? And, and does that make a difference to us? Well, okay. Let me share with you. If, you know, Buddhism works even without the Buddha. Because Buddhism is not about the Buddha, it's about his teachings. And... If the Buddha didn't say the words that we think he said, if he didn't do the things that we think he did, his teachings still work. It's amazing. Now, they have historical evidence that somebody lived who was called the Buddha. And they know where he was born. They know where he died. They know where he achieved enlightenment. They have all that mapped out in Nepal and India. It's very cool. So we, as a Buddhist, we sort of have faith. In this respect, we sort of have faith that maybe there was a human being who was called a Buddha. The word Buddha means one who is awake. And maybe he left us his teachings and we can become awake as well. And so that very first step is filled with a great amount of faith. But now the second step is filled with confidence because Buddhism self-validates. The more you practice, the more you know it's true. It's very cool. Did that answer your question, sort of? Thank you. Yeah. Um, if someone has achieved nirvana, uh-huh. would they not be there because they're away from the cycle of rebirth? Good question. Okay, what happens when you get achieved nirvana? And let me get a little water for this one, okay? Ah. 
Five minutes left? Okay. I'll answer fast then. First of all, if they're alive and they achieve nirvana, they end their suffering. They also end their karma when they achieve nirvana. And in Buddhism, we don't have a soul. What transmigrates from one lifetime to the next is not a soul, but karmic energy. So if you end your karma, there's nothing to be reborn. Now parents have sex, but there's no karma, so there's no kid. Okay, does that mean that you don't exist ever again? Absolutely not. The Buddha's here right now with us, but he exists today because of his nirvana, not because of his birth. He exists today because of nirvana. Nothing in our world is here because of nirvana other than enlightened people. Everything in our world was created. Everything. And everything is going to be destroyed. So we don't even, can't even realize what that might be like to exist without being born. But if you can figure out how to exist without being born, you'll never get sick, you'll never get old, and you'll never die. And that's what the Buddha did. So he ended his suffering while he was alive. He ended his karma while he was alive. And then after he died, he existed because of his nirvana, not because of another rebirth. Is that okay? Okay, I'm going to have to stop right now because we only have five minutes. And, and Miss Timms asked me to do something today. She said, Kusla, can you, can you bring your blues harmonica with you? Because, because sometimes if you listen to somebody talk, it can be so boring for 45 minutes. And just a little music at the end makes life and lunch seem so much better. So let's see if we can play some blues. Maybe a little fast tune, and then maybe a slower tune. Here we go. my presentation to the 8th graders at Chadwick School in Palos Verdes, California on Basic Buddhism.
Hope you find it interesting. Hope you find it useful. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my website, kusala.info. That's K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. If you'd like to download some free e-books, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. If you'd like to download more podcasts I've done, you can get those at iTunes or dharmatalks.info. That's dharmatalks.info. If you'd like to learn something about the Zen of guitar, I put together a page at zenguitar.info. That's zenguitar.info. And if you'd like to email me, my email address is kusala at urbandharma.org. Well, that does it. That's the end of this podcast. So until the next one, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.